0: It's Monday, November 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Joe Biden is now president-elect of the United States, with over 75 million people voting for the Biden-Harris ticket. President Trump has refused to concede while his campaign files lawsuits in multiple states, alleging fraud and that the election was stolen. As Biden begins the transition to taking over, there is much on his plate. Getting a handle on the coronavirus pandemic the economy, and most importantly, trying to unite a deeply divided country. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for more. Next, possibly the biggest winner in this election was cannabis and magic mushrooms. Measures to legalize cannabis had major victories in various states. Oregon and Washington DC also approved the therapeutic use of magic mushrooms. Alicia Victoria Lozano, digital reporter at NBC News, joins us for how drugs were a big winner this election. Finally, as the weather turns colder, restaurants have had to adapt once again to be able to serve customers and keep the coronavirus from spreading. Enter bubble dining. Restaurants are setting up clear plastic domes and pods with tables set inside to keep customers safe and warm. But are they safe? Ventilation and cleanliness must still be maintained inside. Allison Chu, wellness reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the new dining pods. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in refusal of Democrats and Republicans to cooperate with one another, it's not some
1: mysterious force beyond our control. It's a decision, a choice we make. And if we can decide not to cooperate, then we can decide to cooperate. Joining us
0: now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. What a crazy week in this election cycle. Uh, Joe Biden has been... Projected to be the president elect of the United States. He got over 75 million votes. President Trump got about 71 million votes. Ginger, let's talk big picture because obviously this election was always about President Trump, whether you were for him or against him. You know, even those numbers are pretty split down the the middle right there with the country on both sides. And while voters did vote Joe Biden in, they still voted for a lot of Republican candidates down ballot. So What does this mean for the overall picture and how Joe Biden will govern? Yeah,
1: what we saw on Tuesday in the election and what NBC News exit polls show us is that this is a deeply divided and polarized country. This was not some big sweeping moment where the country changed directions and went away from Donald Trump. He held on to his support. He held on to, like you said, 71 million voters who supported him. And in some places, some important key states, those were really narrow margins. And because of that, as you said, Republicans won Senate seats that many of us had thought were at risk of being taken by Democrats. And that means that when Joe Biden becomes president in January, he's going to have to grapple with an America that still remains very divided. And some of that's going to be practical. I mean, we don't know for sure who's going to control the Senate, but it's most likely that Republicans will still be in charge of the Senate when Joe Biden becomes president. And that means Biden's going to have to negotiate with Mitch McConnell. He's going to have to get Mitch McConnell to sign off on all of his cabinet appointments, all of his ambassadors, any judge that he approves, um, I mean really just anything that Joe Biden wants to get done. And so it's to be seen whether that means that going forward, that polarization, that division gets worse as we see sort of feuds or standoffs between the President Biden and Mitch McConnell, or uh, if that sort of brings in an era of bipartisanship that's forced to work together in a divided government from day one, they might find some places where they could agree.
0: There's two things I'm very curious about about Joe Biden's career has been in the Senate and all that, making those compromises, working with the other side. So he is effective at that. So we'll see how that develops. So I'm I'm curious about that. And then uh, beyond that, you know, the balance in his own party, in Joe Biden's party, balancing the progressive wing and their demands. And for President Trump, the Republican Party, how do they move forward with or without him? Do they continue to embrace him? You know, is Trumpism still around for years to come? You know, there's a lot of open questions there.
1: I mean, I think we're going to see some questions about what the Republican Party does about Donald Trump in the very near future. We saw on Sunday, you know, we're talking 24 hours after it became apparent that Joe Biden will be the next president. Donald Trump still posting on Twitter, still saying that his enemies or people who oppose him were trying to take the election away from him, still making just really baseless and unbounded accusations of voter fraud for which he nor his campaign have been able to provide any evidence. We've seen a handful of Republicans start to congratulate Joe Biden, recognize him as the incoming president, put out statements. Um, but what do they do now? And we saw uh, President Trump's son on Twitter, sort of explicitly saying that anyone who wasn't backing Trump now wasn't supporting him as he continued to lob these these unfounded accusations would suffer if they tried to run for president in 2024. They think it's a litmus test, but I think it's a test for the Republican Party about what they do now and how they handle the president as he continues to try to litigate this election.
0: Joe Biden already gave his victory speech. There seems to be no plans for President Trump to give a concession speech. And we're just hearing nothing but more lawsuits coming in some of these key battleground states. As you mentioned, President Trump's tweets, they're all about stolen elections. I won by big margins, even though that just is not true. And some of these lawsuits that we're seeing in these states, the disputed ballots really aren't enough to turn anything around, per se.
1: We expect at least two recounts to unfold over the next week as well, one in Georgia, one in Wisconsin. The Georgia margin is very narrow and it is not, Biden's win is not contingent upon it. But we don't often see elections with thousands of vote difference, which is even a narrow margin in Georgia is I think 7,000 votes on Sunday morning between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Those don't often move when you recount an election. You might recount, you might move 10 or 100, but not 7,000. So it could be just that this starts to feel like housekeeping, that they're going through doing the things that they have to do to just certify that the results they told us this week are in fact the results. We understand that his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has continued to encourage him to wage these legal battles. I wouldn't hold your breath for a Trump concession speech. Um, (laughs) I think I would expect to see more of of the same on his Twitter.
0: And then Joe Biden this week uh, already said he's going to announce a coronavirus task force. I mean, he's ready to go, kind of getting the wheels going already. Uh, He's got a lot on his plate. Obviously, he's got the coronavirus economy. And we already talked about trying to unite the country, that's going to be a very huge lift right there, too.
1: One important thing to remember about Trump is that he is still the president for more than two more months. And there's no telling what happens in those two months. But there is for sure still a pandemic. So it will be eventually incumbent upon him to start returning to some of the work of governing at least a little bit. So we might see that from him. And as you said, Joe Biden starting that transition work, although he is not president yet, transitions have a lot of rules and so he actually any nominee must start putting together a transition in the summer so he's got staff they'll start to look at who they're going to hire who he's going to appoint to cabinet positions what type of executive orders he's already got some immigration executive orders that are meant to undo some of president trump's that he plans to sign maybe uh in the first days and weeks of his presidency so more of that i'm sure is to come in the days and weeks ahead
0: Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: For a long time, public safety leaders have been giving platitudes towards the idea that, hey, we can't arrest our way out of addiction. So I think it's time to step up and put our ideas into action and say, look, if this is your first or second interaction with the criminal justice system, and it's based just on possession of a small user quantity of drugs, let's try something different.
0: Joining us now is Alicia Victoria Lozano, digital reporter at NBCnews.com. Thanks for joining us, Alicia.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: Looking at the election this year, you know, despite what's going on with the presidency and the Senate and the House, all that, We seem to have one big loser, one big winner. The big loser this time around were the polls for getting it wrong again. And the big winner this time around seemed to be drugs, psychedelics. Cannabis won big across the country in a lot of different forms and fashion. So Arizona, New Jersey, South Dakota, Montana, Mississippi, they all legalized some form of marijuana use. And Oregon became the first state to decriminalize small possessions of harder drugs. And even approve the use of psychedelic mushrooms. So there's a lot to unpack here. Alisa, help us walk through some of this.
3: So, I mean, I think the big thing to remember is that while Tuesday was obviously a big win for cannabis and even some harder drugs was mentioned, this is really building on a movement that is years, if not decades, in the making. Just 10 years ago, we had cannabis illegal in all 50 states. That has completely changed. And now the majority of states have some law on the books, whether it's recreational or medicinal, that allows cannabis consumption. And as we get further and further along in this sort of anti-prohibition movement, people are really starting to look at other drugs as well. And of course, we've had a huge opioid crisis going on for years now, but there's a lot of concern whether criminalizing that particular drug is really helping people combat addiction disorders. So you have a state like Oregon that has now decided, you know what, we're not going to criminalize opioid use. We're instead going to start looking at ways to maybe help people who have addiction disorders. And that is... That really speaks to the bigger movement that we're seeing. I think that people have reached a point where the war on drugs clearly didn't have the outcome that law enforcement intended. It did not lower youth in any way. It didn't prevent addiction disorders, and it crowded jails and prisons. And so now you have people on both sides of the aisle. I mean, this is another important thing to remember, especially mentioning some of these states, Arizona, New Jersey, South Dakota, Montana, Mississippi – All of these states have both Republicans and Democrats. Some are more red, some are more blue, some are squarely purple. But it seems that cannabis and now even harder drug use is something that people on both sides of the aisle can agree on, that it might be time to start looking at reforms and and changing some of the laws.
0: Sticking with Oregon a little bit more, decriminalizing these small possessions of these other harder drugs, was that particularly a big problem for them there? Were they seeing a lot of arrests being made in this? I I know it's a problem throughout the country, but specifically in Oregon, was that trying to meet a need that they had there?
3: So Oregon is a place where especially progressive movements and campaigns have a lot of momentum, And, and it's always been that way. They have had some issues with especially opioids. I think opioids in particular, we have seen a lot of problems On the West Coast, I mean, obviously, places like Pennsylvania especially have a deep issue that they've been battling for years. But Seattle has had a problem that they've been dealing with, San Francisco, Oregon. So it's just that it seems to me that there are advocates out there who are just saying, you know what, we're not getting the results by just incarcerating folks. So (laughs) I don't think it's Oregon specific. It seems to be a national movement. And Oregon is just very open (laughs) to experimenting, so to speak.
0: Talk to me a little bit about magic mushrooms, though. What what was uh, behind this? Uh, You know, I know I I know it's being done. You have to do it in a in a clinical setting. It's not like you can just buy them on the streets or anything like that. But tell me about what the reasoning behind that one is.
3: So that actually, I think speaks to what we started seeing in Canada quite recently. And I don't want to get too into Canada, but Canada quite recently started allowing therapeutic use of psilocybin, (laughs) also called magic mushrooms for short. And we started to see health studies from across the world, where patients who are suffering from mental health disorders, but also end-of-life anxiety and stress, have seen some really great outcomes with something like magic mushrooms or even the mescaline contained in cactus. And it was explained to me yesterday by somebody who actually has invested in the Canadian market, and he is a doctor, but he told me that essentially magic mushrooms glue onto the serotonin receptors in your brain. And so they induce feelings of wellness, of happiness. They lower stress and anxiety. This is another issue that Oregon has been looking at. And it's important to mention that D.C. also decriminalized magic mushrooms. And D.C. is not a place where you would think they would be very keyed into the uh, psychedelic (laughs) drug movement. (laughs) But yet, (laughs) I think there's a lot of scientific backing. And there's also the question of, Until we start to legalize some of these things, we're not going to be able to study them. And so there's a lot of questions that remain over the therapeutic use, for instance, that Canada is starting to answer for itself. And I think people in Oregon said, hey, you know, if if our neighbors to the north can do this, then maybe there's something here to look at that we can start treating our own issues and our own patients with something that is a little bit more holistic. And it's important also to mention that we're not talking about huge amounts of mushrooms. We are talking about microdosing, which is just, you know, a tiny bit under a supervised setting. Someone yesterday, a source told me that in a perfect practice, the doses would be so small that people could still operate their daily lives. But this is one thing that might be able to help them cope with very difficult circumstances happening internally.
0: Alicia Victoria Lozano, digital reporter at NBCNews.com. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you
2: for having me. Have a great one. When it comes to pod dining, while we've all established that that environment is not ideal in a pandemic, there are a number of things that you can do to kind of make it safer for you and and the group of people that, that you'll be eating with. Joining
0: us now is Allison Chu, wellness reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Allison. Thanks so much for having me on. I've been uh, pretty fascinated with the progression of how restaurants have been adjusting to the pandemic early on. Obviously, everything transitioned to outdoor dining. And then the big question came was like, well, what are we going to do when it starts getting cold? What are we going to do when it starts raining? You know, you still need to put people in certain places. And one of the new things that have been popping up in certain areas now, you can call them bubble tents, domes, dining pods. But there are these little clear igloo-like things where they're setting up outside of restaurants and then, you know, they're putting a table and chairs inside. There's a lot of questions. Are these things safe? Because now you're just creating an enclosed area where diners are sitting. So, Allison, you looked into this. Tell us a little bit more about it.
2: So the dining bubbles have become, like you said, just increasingly popular, especially as the weather starts to turn colder in some places across the U.S., you know, or even in other countries. And like you said, the big concern is, whether it's safe to be grouping a, people, a group of people inside an area where it's small and the ventilation is not good, essentially because it's a tent. And so, what experts are saying is that any activity that you do at this point in the pandemic that is outside of your household, there's always going to be some level of risk. But there are a lot of things that you can do to mitigate or you know reduce that level of risk. And when it comes to pod dining, while we've all established that environment is not ideal in a pandemic. There are a number of things that you can do to kind of make it safer for you and and the group of people that that you'll be eating with. So one of the main things, obviously, is to really be careful about who you're choosing to have the meal with. Obviously, at this point, if someone in that tent has coronavirus, the chances of you getting it, you know, might be higher than, say, if you were eating outdoors with that person.
0: I guess the ideal situation would be to go from your bubble, your pandemic bubble, to dining in this bubble dining setting with those same people. If you really yeah. want to be safe, at least you all know you're following the rules.
2: The safest option is dining with either your immediate household because you're already exposed to those people in your home setting. And so it would really be similar to having a meal at home around the dining room table. Or, like you said, you're grouping with friends who may not be in your immediate household, but they're part of your pandemic pot and you all agree to be very careful. And so the chances of them having the virus and the chances of you having the virus are, are very low. So those are all things you have to think right. about. And then you're thinking about, well, what do I do with sanitation and ventilation? And there are ways where you can create better airflow in the tent, opening the windows, opening the doors, you know, just keep being mindful of wearing your mask when you're not eating, making sure you're practicing good hand hygiene. You know, all the rules that have already been kind of ingrained in us at this point.
0: And these bubble pods are popping up in a lot of places. New York, Chicago, and Seattle, Mm -hmm. there was a restaurateur speaking to a local news station saying, you know, they were spending a lot of money on getting these. But with regards to the ventilation, they were, uh, you know, this is going to be hard to do. (laughs) There's people waiting, but they were spending 10 to 15 minutes in between parties just to let it air out.
2: So the the difficult part about the ventilation is there's really no guidance and there's just, just hasn't been the research done to know exactly, you know, what is the right amount of time that you need to let these pods air out for. So... I think a lot of restaurants are having to try to figure that out on their own and trying to figure out, you know, what is that appropriate amount of time, and there just isn't science
0: on that yet. And cleaning so, too. You know, hopefully, <laughs> oh, cleaning and, and, right. And yeah. cleaning too. You're cleaning the surface of the table, but are people cleaning the whole inside of the dome? <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that goes into yeah. it. And like I said, I, I applaud these people for really getting innovative with ways to figure it out, ways to keep people mm-hmm. there. But you're right; it always brings up more questions and how on how you're going to actually do it in practice.
2: Right. There's a, lot, there's a lot of variability for sure.
0: Allison Chu, wellness reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.